2: Hi, I'm Rick Martinez. I'm a cookbook author, video host, and I love a good foot massage.
3: Oh, smart man. I'm Carla Lolly music I'm also a cookbook author, video host, and I have never seen an episode of Sex in the City.
2: We would not have been friends in the 90s, just (laughs) FYI. (laughs) This is Borderline Salty, the show where we take your calls, boost your confidence, and make you a better, smarter, happier cook.
3: Today, we'll discuss quick appetizer ideas, mandolin safety, and how to build your own recipe. Ooh. Yeah, if you could let me know how to do that, it would be super helpful for my career.
2: <laughs> okay, um, stay on the line after the show, I'll teach you. <laughs>
3: But before we get into it, I want to share that this week's segment of Tell Me Something Good is brought to you by the Sonos Move, a powerful and portable smart speaker for listening all around your home and beyond. Soundtrack your summer with Sonos. Discover Move plus other speakers and soundbars at sonos.com. Okay, Rick, now tell me something good.
2: Well, Carla, so Carla and I recorded an IG live version of the podcast. And while we were recording, I was actually making a chicken soup that I had had in a town called Tlaxcala, which is in central Mexico. And it was really amazing because it is a chicken soup with a lot of farm fresh veggies, but it's simmered in a milky broth. And... I hadn't had it for probably three years. So I've been mm. developing this recipe for the New York Times. And so I was telling Carla how much I loved the soup when I had it. And post our recording, I tasted it. And Carla, let me tell you, that soup was so incredibly delicious. It's a, it actually was better than I remember. The texture of the soup is so incredible because it's almost as if you put a can of coconut milk into a simmering soup. It's not super milky. It's not super creamy. It's certainly not thick, but it just has this really pleasant texture. It rounds out all the flavors. All of the vegetables, I use squash and corn and mushrooms and then the chicken. It's topped with fried tortilla strips, uh, crema, queso, fried chili de arbol. Mm. It was so, so good.
3: Tell me the name of the soup again.
2: It's called sopa tlaxcala. Uh
3: Uh-huh. So it's just the soup from that region.
2: Yeah. So I'm making this for you when I go back to New York.
3: Yeah, it sounds very fallish. Like with the corn and the squash, you know, it's sort of like that bumper crop kind of time of year.
2: Oh, yeah. It'll be great for September.
3: Can't wait to try it.
2: So, Carla, why don't you tell me something good?
3: Well... My Something Good is not fallish at all. It is peak summer season, in fact, and this past weekend, Fernando and I were staying with friends, our friends Kate and Andrew, who have a house, like, not that far out on Long Island, and they're right around the corner from this amazing Farm called Hog Farm. And we got to go and feed all the chickens. So there's like three chicken coops out in this pasture. So when we were walking across the field, Andrew said, Oh, yep, definitely like some chickens are missing from that third coop. He was like, They must have been dispatched on Friday. And I was like, Oh, okay, cool. And he was like, Yeah, we'll have those hearts later. And I was like, Come again? (laughs) (laughs) So we like, Moved the chickens, watered the chickens, talked to the chickens, and gave them their whatever they eat. And then that night, I was making a salsa verde. Somebody else had the fire going. Something else was going on. And Andrew just, like, rolled up next to me with a big bowl of chicken hearts that he was just cleaning and I've had chicken hearts before. I like them, but I've always had them yakitori style. Like, that's really the only setting mm-hmm. that I've had them. I've never had them cooked in someone's home. So we just, like, threw some salsa verde on them, some olive oil, some salt, some chili flakes, let them marinate. And then he grilled them, like, really hot and fast. They got this char on them, squeezed lemon juice over. And they were so Good.
2: Oh, my God.
3: They were so chickeny, and, like, when you bite into them, they were almost, like, snappy, poppy, crunchy, like, almost like the casing of a really good hot dog, and then it was very QQ texture, like, the bouncy, crunchy, chewy, and fatty, and they were also so fresh, and they were, like, very happy chickens right, right. <clears throat> right up until the end. <laughs>
2: <laughs> until they were dispatched.
3: <laughs> so it was great. It just made me really happy to be, like, out in nature like that, and it was a great experience.
2: That sounds absolutely amazing. That actually sounds like the perfect summer experience. I'm kind of jealous. I want to do that.
3: Yeah, it's nice to, like, be like, yep, this is where your food comes from. Right. And... You know, I was thinking about you because you've talked about knowing how the chickens are raised, knowing how the pigs are raised, and and getting to see an IRL, and maybe it's not the best life you could have as a chicken but because it ends (laughs) the way it does. But, you know, they have a pretty good out there. A lot of fresh air.
2: A lot of fresh air. Yeah. Did you get some eggs?
3: No, weirdly. Okay, go back. Yeah, next summer we'll be having hearts and egg salad. Oh, I think the phone is ringing. Can somebody... That's probably a listener. Can somebody pick up? Hi, Rick and Carla. My
4: name's Anna, and my question is this. Your closest friends are coming over for an impromptu movie night, and you need to impress them with quick but accessible dishes. What is the one sweet and salty appetizer you'd be making with things that you already have in your kitchen?
0: Time's taking. Your friends are coming over in an hour. Help.
2: Ah, uh, Anna. Always have things available in case of friend emergencies. So, first of all, since it's movie night, I would actually start with popcorn and then just find fun ways to doctor it up. A really good and easy way to make a sweet and salty treat for your friends for movie night.
3: Yeah. So, for me, the key to, like, being able to invite people over and give them something in an unplanned way also leans on these pantry things. And... One of the things that we always have that can be turned into a dip very easily is Greek yogurt or even regular yogurt and almost always have cucumbers in the house. So I would take yogurt, drizzle a little olive oil, some lemon zest, some lemon juice, dice up the cucumbers or cut them into spears. And then I would just Kind of gently toast some seeds, like sunflower seeds, Mm, pepitas, mm -hmm. sesame seeds, peanuts, chopped cashews, almonds, whatever, in some nice olive oil gently until it's golden brown, and then you could add salt and pepper to that mixture and just spoon that over the top of the yogurt, and it'll make, like, these nice little – olive oil, rivulets, and you can dip the cucumbers into that, or you could stir the cucumbers in. You could have it with chips. You could have it with other other crudités type of thing. And then a sweet thing that could also be sweet and salty this time of year, I would definitely cut open a cantaloupe or a melon or a sugar kiss or a, even a honeydew. Guys, I'm like— I love honeydew. Honeydew's got a bad rap. Because of overuse and abuse in the 80s, like the green melon ball, the Midori, (laughs) like I just feel like it was one of those flavors that got corrupted.
2: Let's bring it back. It needs to come back.
3: Bring it back. And melon is so vegetal and delicious, so it can go sweet or salty, so I would drizzle A little bit of honey, I would do some crunchy salt, I would do a little Aleppo pepper, I would do a squeeze of lime and some nice cantaloupe wedges, and it would be so refreshing. That would go great with the popcorn, actually, because you have salty and then refreshing.
2: Totally, yeah. Cantaloupe with a little bit of tahini, a squeeze of lime. 100%. Um, If you have any chamoy or Mm. just like pull out the chili powders, have some fun with it.
3: Ooh, we're out of tahini, and Leo has reminded me twice. Thank you. Thank you for the heads up.
2: You always need tahine and Valentina, which I have like a gallon of the shit. Uh, so <laughs> I can actually bring you some. Amen. Line two, you're on.
4: Hey, Rick and Carla. This is Melissa. I am terrified of a mandolin. You know, this summer I like having lots of salads and, you know, picking up fresh produce from the farmer's market and I just end up slicing it by hand and getting kind of subpar results um, because I'm terrified of using it and I've tried using it before and I feel like I'm not using it properly. I'm really struggling. How do I use a mandolin?
3: I love this question because it is an amazing tool, but like any other sharp object in your kitchen, you have to use it properly. You have to practice good technique with it. And I think Rick, you recently caught the ire of the <laughs> mandolin, the mandolin safety community.
2: I did. There was a gentleman that watched one of my videos. And to be fair, I was taking liberties with the mandolin and using it probably in not the safest manner. But it is one of my favorite tools, and I have been using it for years. Years and years ago, when I was working at ABC Kitchen and I started out on the Manger station, we had several salads that were made a la minute on a mandolin. And, you know, one of the cooks told me, wear gloves. And what I ended up doing is— I put five layers of latex gloves on my hand that I was using to move the vegetable over the deck so that if I got nicked by the blade, it would cut through the five layers of latex mm. and, you know, not actually cut my skin. Now, I typically don't wear gloves just because I it's so comfortable for me. I can feel the vegetable as it approaches the blades, and so I know when to stop and how much pressure to apply. But I think it's like any other tool, it's all about, you know, experience and using it. But I definitely think that for first-time users of the mandolin, just put lots and lots of gloves on and you will be fine.
3: Yeah, I think you raise a great point about knowing when to stop and as you're shaving the vegetable down and you're holding the vegetable, and as you go, your fingers are getting closer and closer to the blade, I would just say, like, you don't have to get down to the very scrap of the nub, you know? If you're using mandolin at home, don't be a hero. There's no, there's no glory in that, and if you don't have latex gloves, I would— recommend holding the vegetable with a kitchen towel. So the kitchen towel will actually start to snag way before it. you can keep your fingers tucked behind it. The kitchen towel will will snag on the blade as you get closer. And that's, you know, that's when to be done. Literally throw in the towel. And if you're left with like, <laughs> if you're left with a nub of carrot, that's great. Put it on the edge of your cutting board, sprinkle a little salt on it and have a little bunny snack you
2: know, when you're first starting out, start out with something that is going to slice much easier. And also, I wouldn't recommend julienning anything right off the bat, because you need to get a feel for how the mandolin works. And so slicing a cucumber or apples or pears or potatoes are going to be a lot easier, and you'll get the feel for the device and And then once you get comfortable with it, then you can, you know, graduate to something that maybe is a little bit more difficult. The jicama and the celery root are on like the very high end. So I would not go there unless you (laughs) you just really have an intense need for a julienne celery root salad. But definitely you want to wear the gloves and do all the safety things and try and get as much experience before you jump into that.
3: Yeah, and even if you're watching a video where Rick is going very, very fast, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and flying, (laughs) fennels flying everywhere – Go slow. There's nothing about the mandolin that says it only works if you go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth really fast. Like, take it slow to get comfortable. And if it's not helping you be faster or more consistent, then don't use it. Just cut with a knife. It's all good. Do it by hand. Exactly. Yeah. Slow and steady wins the slice. Borderline salty. You've reached us during working hours.
2: Hi, Rick. Hi, Carla. My name is Jerome. I use the pronouns he, him. I am a huge fan. My question is about cheese, like hard cheeses. I've been trying to buy, you know, more actual blocks of cheese as opposed to the pre-shredded stuff. But I don't know where to keep it. Should I keep it in the refrigerator? It then feels like it gets really hard and dry. If I keep it out on the counter, I feel like it gets Moldy very quickly, and then I end up not being able to use the cheese. And then sometimes I like wrap it in a plastic wrap, but then it gets very wet and oily. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. Is it what where should I be putting the cheese? Any help would be appreciated.
3: Can you just hear all the mice on the like on the <laughs> on the what is the trucker like the CB radio? They're like, we
4: don't have one, Jerome's leaving cheese out on his counter.
2: <laughs> okay, yeah, but except that they're, they're like, um, we've hit the jackpot because this guy's not leaving out the Velveeta. Yeah. He's leaving out the wheels of parm. <laughs>
3: <laughs> the mouse family's like, uh, I'm
1: calling all a mouse and a radius so <laughs> <laughs> Jerome's
2: house. I've never wanted to be a mouse until right now. <laughs> so, Jerome, great that you're buying big blocks of cheese. Mm-hmm. Don't leave them out on, on the counter for the mice. Nope. Nope, nope. It's actually pretty simple. What I usually do is I just wrap it in parchment paper, or if you have butcher paper, that is also good. Just wrap it up and then put it in a plastic bag and put it in the refrigerator.
3: Yeah, your harder cheeses can be wrapped in paper. I like wax paper because I feel like I can get it really airtight Mm -hmm. around the piece of cheese, and I read this a really long time ago in Steve Jenkins' The Cheese Book, which is, like, still one of the great books about cheese— You need to use a a fresh wrapper every time you rewrap the cheese because Mm. the outside of the cheese is getting onto the paper. And the next time you go to seal it, you're never going to get, like, an airtight seal again. So, yeah, parchment, if that's what's in your drawer, wax paper um, is great. And actually, one of the great presents I ever got was from my Aunt Christina, who gave me at Christmas a roll of actual cheese paper, like what they use. Cheese paper. Wow. Yeah, it's like sturdier and it kind of has like a coating on the inside, but it folds like really satisfying gift wrapping paper that you get like all the really nice hard corners. Anyway, I used it up. I never bought more, but that was a great (laughs) gift. And sometimes if I just need to hold it closed, if it's like we said hard to use, so your Parmesan, your aged cheddar, Swiss and Gruyere, things that you would grate, wrap them. And then I keep Rubber bands from bunched vegetables in my drawer, and I'll just throw a rubber band around it to hold it closed or put it inside of a zip top bag just for another layer of air sealing. And then I think the best way to keep cheese fresh before it gets moldy or goes off is to just not buy too much. So I love, like, getting away from buying pre-grated cheese, which is going to cost you more ounce over ounce than buying it in the whole piece and doing it yourself. But just don't buy, don't buy more than you're going to go through in a couple weeks because that's when you'll, like with anything else in the fridge, that's when you're more likely to have waste.
2: You should definitely buy in small quantities, but if you're like me and you see that big block and you really got to have it, buy it. But then do like Anna, invite your friends over, have a big party, have a movie night, make a charcuterie board, put that block out and enjoy it with your friends.
3: The mice family.
2: And the mice. <laughs> That's the after party. <laughs>
3: After party. Oh my (laughs) god. Hi, Rick and Carla, my name is Natalie, and I use pronouns she, her. I have a broad question about recipe building. I have a goal for this year to test and write my own recipe, which is very outside of my comfort zone. I'm not the most creative home chef, and so that's why it's a goal for me. I really have no idea where to start. I have some general ideas about flavor combinations I like, but the idea of creating something somewhat new completely boggles my mind. I don't know how I can even start. So. One is this a stupid goal and two if you have any tips or frameworks places to start that would be so helpful. I mean first things first is this a stupid goal? Absolutely not. I love this so much and I love it. I love it because I love the idea of being at the bottom of the learning curve with something that you are interested about because it all of the opportunity, all of the excitement, all of the potential is in front of you. I think this is so cool. And the other thing I would say to Natalie specifically saying, you know, how do I come up with something completely new? It totally boggles my mind. Guess what? You don't have to come up with something completely new. In fact, the amount of recipe developers who completely break the mold with something that has never been invented before very far and very few between. No one expects you to be like the chef at Noma, like feeding people live ants (laughs) that they've never known, like a new experience. But like most cooking methods are as old as going back thousands of years. And a lot of these combinations and techniques like have been done. And that doesn't mean that like you can't do it a little bit different and then it's yours.
2: Not to say that we don't love Live ants, just f y i no, you know and i really I really love what you said because there was a moment in my career where I would get an assignment, and I put so much pressure on myself to make something, you know, Different than everybody else. We were in a very competitive kitchen at Bon Appetit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was a lot of, of pressure to, I mean, let's let's be honest, like outdo one another, right? Or impress our colleagues. Sure. And what I learned after a few years of that is that it's easier, more satisfying, more fun, and frankly, more delicious if I start from the point of what do I want to eat? Yeah. You know, if I'm craving something in this moment and then I just try and put all of those flavors together in my head and then use that as the point of departure for this recipe and then just try and put together something that actually makes sense. So, you know, if I'm craving tomatoes and corn and peppers and... Maybe that's a sandwich. Maybe that's a pasta. Maybe that's a side. Maybe that's a main. Right. And and then just decide. And it's like a choose-your-own-adventure story. And it doesn't have to be complicated. It's just a matter of what is it that you want to eat? What is going to make you happy in that moment? And that, to me, is, I think, why I love this job so much. Because... I don't put that pressure on myself anymore. I don't—I'm not competing with anybody, not even really myself. Mm -hmm. It's like it's a much easier way to look at food, at least for me. That's, you know, how I've learned my process.
3: Yeah. I mean, even going back to the very top of our episode where you were talking about this soup that you had and you loved and you— have been thinking about these flavors, and years have gone by, and you're like, you know what? I'm going to work on that recipe. That dish exists. That's, that's a dish that already exists. But when you set out to develop it, you did it in the way that, like, fits with the process and the way that you believe the best techniques are. I'm sure there was a lot of thinking about, you know, what ingredients, when to add, which ones, how you wanted to cut the vegetables to make it beautiful to you, like the aromas, the different chilies you used, you know, Whatever those personal touches were, but you didn't like that's a dish that exists completely. But that doesn't mean that you, as a recipe developer, didn't make an original recipe that you can put your name on. Going back to Natalie, if you set out to become a recipe developer, just accept that your first or second pass, you know, is probably not going to be where you want it to end up. So Be sure that you're comfortable with um, there's a a bit of financial investment that goes into recipe testing. Sometimes the food, I eat my mistakes, but sometimes they're, like, no good and you got to, like, start over. That's money. That's time. But that's the whole point. Like, Rick and I, for every recipe we've put our name on, there were three or four versions that, like, were not quite good enough. Right.
2: Say, you know, one of the things that's key when you start developing is just taking very copious notes and having a plan before you start. Mm -hmm. And you know, some people have much more detailed plans than others. I am the kind of cook that I will write out essentially my ingredient list and kind of make in my in my head sort of the game plan for like what I'm gonna do and in what order. So that I have like a, a blueprint for how to do it. But I have enough creative wiggle room that I change things. But you also need to record all of those notes. And, you know, I typically have both my phone and my laptop in the kitchen with me at all times. So I can either yeah. do a voice note, I can write something down in my on my phone in the notes section, or I'll have like a full-on Word doc open on my laptop. But... It's just key because you won't remember, and the, the you know the, I think the worst thing that happens is when you make something that is incredibly delicious and then you forgot what you did. Yeah, and then you like spend time trying to recreate it or reinvent the the dish, <laughs> and that happens.
3: Ah, uh, the 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 masterpiece no one <laughs> yeah. no one saw or tasted. Another thing that I would be confident about and know that is most people's process is looking at other people's recipes is okay. It is a good idea. It will help you. That's most recipe testers or recipe developers. So, yeah, get inspired by other people. That's what libraries are for. Go look at a bunch of cookbooks and, and then just kind of feel your way through it. If I had to sum this up in one sentence, my advice for where to start would be take a recipe that you already know and love and add one thing to it, change one thing about it, do something slightly different, see how it goes. Bingo, bango. You just made your first original recipe.
2: And invite friends over with their Tupperware to eat all of your tests.
4: Exactly.
1: Post your free job on linkedin.com/recommend today.
4: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business.
3: All right, before we head out the door here, it is time for one more segment. And today it is time for, you guessed it, Rad Fad or Bad Fad? Yay. (laughs) This is the segment where I make Rick watch a ridiculous TikTok trending video and we find out if we should all watch it or if we should pretend (laughs) it never existed. (laughs) And as always, this video is going to be linked in our show notes so you can have access to it and watch right along with Rick. All right, Rick, are you ready? This is a summary one.
2: Okay, I am so ready.
3: All right, great. Let's roll it. Okay,
0: my Pilates instructor makes this drink almost like every day, I think she told me, and it's a healthy alternative to a Coke. And I am not joking you, it tastes just like a Coke and you're gonna think I'm insane. So, do like a splash of balsamic vinegar.
2: No, with
0: ice in a no, cup,
2: no, 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 no.
0: And then take any sparkling
3: yeah, beverage. Yeah. Stop it, stop it. Like I'm Oh my LaCroix. god. it could be any flavor. Any flavor. This one's the guava, it's like the summer flavor. Guava, okay, any flavor. <laughs> and
2: balsamic together. vinegar.
3: Yeah, see it honestly already looks like a Coke.
2: No, it doesn't.
0: But I swear to God. It tastes like a Coke and it's healthy. No, it absolutely doesn't. You You guys should have tried it out.
2: Shut up. No. (laughs) How is that? You just keep lying to yourself, lady. No. That is.
3: You know what's funny? If this just said, let me show you how to make a shrub. Yeah. It would be like, cool. Okay. Show me.
2: Yeah. I mean, and also lean into it. Like, put put a slice of fruit in it, or put some herbs in it, and like make it a thing. But like, that is not a coke. Sorry, no, you lose Bals- balsamic vinegar. First of all, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, I'm like I need to calm. I'm gonna breathe for a second. Okay, breathe. Here, we breathe, baby. here we go. Here we go. First of all, I actually thought like when the video first started, I actually thought she was going to pour olive oil into a real Coke, and then I was oh. already I was preparing myself, kind of like you know, you know how people put butter in coffee sometimes, yeah, or, yeah,
3: you know, yeah, bulletproof hot coffee, rum, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah.
2: I, so I was pre- I was gearing up for that. I was like Coke and olive oil,
3: yeah. And right. then
2: I was startled by the, the the black liquid that then came out of the Cala Vita olive bottle.
3: Also, the fact that, like, it's delicious no matter what flavor LaCroix you use, right. for, that's a lie. It's just a
2: lie. <laughs> that is also a big lie. I just think if she—we're going to make a summery drink that yeah. is healthy, that is great for post-Pilates workout. Yeah. We're going to start with some balsamic vinegar, a splash of your favorite bubbly liquid— a squeeze of lime, a sprig of mint, a thing, and a this, yeah. and a wh- yeah, great, I got it. Like great, great, amazing, rad fad. But I'm sorry, <laughs> when you try and tell me you're gonna make a healthy Coke,
3: no. it sounds like we object strictly on the branding and marketing promise alone.
2: It's all about spin. <laughs> it's all about spin. I think, and you are not, you are
3: not buying the
2: spin. I am not buying the spin. No, you can't. T- spun
3: out on this spin. In fact. Okay, Rick, this trend truly is sweeping the nation, but you tell me, is it a rad fad or a bad fad?
2: It is a poorly (laughs) named fad.
3: This is a a mad fad.
2: This is a mad fad, yeah. He's mad. (laughs) (laughs) And that's it for this week's episode of Borderline Salty.
3: You can find recipes and recommendations from this week's episode in our show notes.
2: If you have a question or a fear you want us to help you through, you can always leave us a voicemail at 833-433-FOOD.
3: That number again is 833-433-3663.
2: Borderline Salty is an original production by Pineapple Street Studios. We're your hosts. I'm Rick Martinez.
3: I'm Carla Lally music You can find links to our work in the show notes for this episode.
2: Natalie Brennan is our lead producer.
3: Janelle Anderson is our producer.
2: Our managing producer is Agarenesh Ashagre.
3: Our assistant producer is Madi Orozco.
2: Our head of sound and engineering is Raj Makija.
3: Mixing and engineering by Davey Sumner and Jason Richards.
2: Our assistant engineers are Sharon Bardalis and Jade Brooks.
3: Original jam music from our very own Raj Makija
2: with additional music from Vincent Vega, Spring Gang and Glovebox courtesy of Epidemic Sound.
3: Legal services for Pineapple Street are provided by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson, De Roche.
2: Our executive producers are Max Linsky and Jenna Weisberman.
3: We appreciate Anna, Melissa, Jerome and Natalie for calling in this week.
2: I want to um <laughs> I actually I want to thank who was what was the Radfad woman's name? That was Mandy. I would like to thank Mandy for her fad because I feel weirdly cleansed now. I feel like I had a lot of like backed up <laughs> intense emotion that has now been released and I just feel so free. So maybe, maybe. Maybe
3: it was Maybe healthy. it was
2: a rad fad because mm. I feel good. Like I didn't yes. even drink it.
3: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they say we you love to hate whatever. Yeah. I think you just had you love to hate some healthy Coke.
2: So Mandy, enjoy your healthy Coke, and uh, I'm gonna have a great day now. Thanks. Classic. We will talk to you next
3: week. Uh, hey Rick, before we go, yeah, have a Coke
2: and a smile. <laughs> Coke is it.
3: (laughs) Wasn't that another? Wait,
2: what? So it was Coke is it. Coke is the one? Taste the feeling. I'd like to teach the world to sing Mm -hmm. in perfect Mm -hmm. harmony. Perfect perfect harmony. Except
3: I'm tone deaf. So I can't. (laughs) Hey, but Coke, call us. Mexican Coke, yes.
2: Oh my God, we love a Mexican Coke.
3: Give us, give us the OG.